The only way to pass this SQE1 exam is to get enough MCQs right. It's as simple as that. So I thought it'd be a good idea to go over an MCQ. But before we do that, let's discuss exactly what we mean by MCQ and the kind of MCQs that you're going to have to answer as part of the SQE1 exam. So back to basics. First thing is MCQ means multiple choice question. And for the SQE1 exam, you'll get 360 MCQs in total with 180 for FLK1 and 180 for FLK2. And that's split between four exams. And you have approximately one minute and 30 seconds for each multiple choice question. Every MCQ is going to be a scenario based question. That means you're going to be presented with a set of facts based on a client situation. And what will you will need to do is in the exam, read through that client scenario, identify the relevant legal issues, principles and rules, and then apply those rules to the facts to choose one of the five possible answers that the question will give you. So remember, multiple choice question. You're going to get that set of facts. You're then going to get a question based on that set of facts. And then you'll get an A, B, C, D, E, and you have to choose the best answer. Now, this is where it gets a bit tricky because in an MCQ or the way that the SQE exams are structured are that they are single best answer. And what that means is that in your A, B, C, D, E, you might get more than one correct answer. And what you have to do is to choose the best one for the client. And what that goes back to is how the SQE is assessing you as a day one solicitor. So if you go on the SQE 1 assessment specification, it has this thing called Miller's Pyramid. And Miller's Pyramid is based on a tiered structure whereby at the bottom, you're expected to know the basic facts of law. So the black letter law, you're expected to know that and to have a good understanding of it. But by the time you reach the top level, what you're expected to be able to do is to not only apply those facts to a client scenario and understand what the correct solution is, but also be able to choose a solution that fits the client scenario the best. So the exam is testing you on more than just the law, application of the law, like you would in a law degree. It's going further than that. And this is why most people actually fail the SQE, because it's a lack of understanding that for this exam, you need to know more than just the law. You also need to be able to know how to apply the law in order to get the right solution for the client. And that will be a really close analysis of the facts, A. B, of course, it will be an understanding of the law, that first level of the pyramid. C, it will be an understanding of how client scenarios work, what kind of situations clients can find themselves in, what kind of solutions clients look for from their solicitors. And then finally, being able to apply the law correctly to choose that right solution. 
Now, that kind of client scenario question will be the most advanced MCQ that you get in the exam. It won't be every MCQ. There will be some MCQs where you are expected to do that traditional analysis, set of facts, read your facts, come up with those or remember, recall those legal principles and apply those to the facts and come up with a solution. But just be aware that there are those trickier elements. It's a single best answer exam and there are those trickier elements which make this exam so difficult. What I want to focus on today is the best way to approach any MCQ. Because foundationally, no matter what kind of MCQ you're dealing with, you will always need to follow the same structure in your head when you're answering the MCQ. And it's a pattern. And it's called the IRAC pattern. So I R A C, and it's very much a tried and tested pattern that's been used in law schools for many years. And it works for MCQs as well as it does for scenario problem questions in a traditional essay style manner. So how does IRAC work? So let's imagine you've got that set of facts. You're sitting in the exam and you've got that set of facts in front of you on the screen. The first thing you need to do, which is I, is identify the issue. So you need to be able to identify what area of the syllabus you are in. And that in itself is quite hard, given that you've got so much to learn for the SQE. So you identify the area of the syllabus you're in. So, for example, are you dealing with um, an easements question? So a question on how an easement might be impliedly created. Are you dealing with a question on how a company runs its day to day affairs? Are you dealing with a question on whether the client can get bail? The first thing you need to do is I identify the issue. Which area of the law is the question in? So that's step one. The R bit, so step two, is to establish the rule or to recall the rule. Because if you think about it, when you're sitting in that SQE exam, the ambition is that you have a really good understanding of all the relevant black letter law rules and principles that you need to know for this exam. It's all in your head. It's all there. You've spent hours revising. You've used devil's advocate. You're really familiar with the law and it comes easy to you. Once you've identified the relevant part of the syllabus that you're in, so you've identified the issue, that first part of IRAC, then the next thing to do is to think, OK, so I'm dealing with the implied creation of easements. What are the relevant rules when it comes to the implied creation of easements? So things like Wielden and Burroughs, Section 62, LPA 1925, implication by necessity, common intention. You're recalling those rules. And you're basically just presenting in front of your eyes, if you like, and you can jot it down on a pad of paper if you can, what the relevant legal rules are for this question. And that's a really tricky exercise because it's about going into the recesses of your mind and picking out that source of information that you need. And obviously you need to do that 360 times, which is why the exam is also extremely tiring. So you establish the rule, you bring forward for this question. So in order that you can answer this question correctly, you're bringing forward the correct and relevant 
black letter law rules. The third stage, so our IRAC, we've done issue, we've done rule. The next thing is apply. So what you do is you apply the law that you've just recalled and you've presented in front of yourself. You need to apply that law to the facts. So what does that actually mean? What that means is that you take the relevant legal rules and you put them in the context of, or rather you put the client scenario in the context of, those relevant legal rules. So if, for example, we were dealing with an implied creation of easements, let's say that we were dealing with an easement that's been impliedly created via Section 62 LPA 1925, we recall that rule, we then put it on, if you like, you layer it on your facts, you go through your facts and you're checking, do the facts indicate and comply with what I need to impliedly create an easement under the LPA, section 62. So you're applying the law to the facts in the sense that you're taking the legal rules and you're putting the facts in the context of those legal rules. Has the client done this, this and this? which allows for the easement to be impliedly created. That's the hardest bit. And that bit takes a lot of practice. And I think it's more than just endlessly going over MCQs. You might often hear that some SQE candidates will say, you know, I practice question after question after question. And a lot of the time, that does result in failure. You often hear the success stories. A candidate might have practiced hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of questions and they end up passing. That's fantastic. But often just trying out MCQs over and over again is not necessarily the right solution because you're not getting the most out of each multiple choice question. And it's worth saying that there aren't many multiple choice questions out there. If you're with a course provider or uh, you're using devil's advocate, obviously to create these MCQs is in itself a very difficult exercise, but also to create them in a way that makes them just like the exam requires an expertise, which means that there aren't thousands and thousands, and in other words, an unlimited source of these MCQs out there. So what I'm trying to say is you need to use every single MCQ that you've got wisely. And the way to do that is to use a technique and to develop a technique which you can use again and again and again, and which increases your chances of getting not just the right answer, but the best answer. So applying the law to the facts is in itself a legal skill. But if you master that skill, you will pass the SQE1 exam. Taking that law, those legal rules that you've recalled in your head and putting them in the client scenario so that you are able to understand whether the client has, for example, created a, an easement. That is the hardest thing that you need to do in this exam. Once you've done that, once you've applied the law and you understand whether the legal principle has been satisfied or not, then your final step is to conclude. Iraq. Okay, so you need to conclude. And the conclusion part is the selection 
of your A, B, C, D, E. Either the correct answer, if all the other answers are incorrect, so you're choosing the correct answer, or if you've got more than one correct answer, the best answer for the client solution, the client scenario, okay? And as I said, if I were doing this exam, and obviously Devil's Advocate is created to help with this, you practice, 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 not just MCQs, but also the technique of correctly answering these MCQs. And the final thing I'd say is, it's also important to understand that behind every single MCQ is a black letter law principle. So there's a black letter law rule behind every MCQ. And for example, in our easements example that we were talking about earlier, the black letter law rule was how easements are created under section 62 LPA 1925. What I would advise is when you're doing your MCQs, not only do you practice that technique every single time so it becomes uh, more natural to you as, you as you go along, but you also remember to note down that relevant black letter law rule. Sounds simple, but often you might see in MCQs quite long-winded explanations, and it's hard to pinpoint exactly what the black letter law rule is that you've got wrong in this question. Obviously, if you know the black letter law rule, that's fine. That's fine. You can move on, do the next MCQ, practice your technique. But if you've come across a question and you've got it wrong and you're weaker on the relevant black letter law rule, just note it down, create an index of your relevant black letter law rules, note it down so that you can revisit it in the future. And what that means is it saves you having to go over MCQs that you've already done just to find the relevant black letter law rule. So that's just a, a little kind of tip for when you're practicing your MCQs. I thought we'd also have a go at an actual MCQ. So we can do an example MCQ. So let's do one. So we've got MCQ here. I'm gonna go over the facts, go over our A, B, C, D, E options. And then just like the exam, what we're gonna do is go through that IRAP technique. We're gonna identify the issue. We're then gonna talk about the relevant black letter law rules. We're then gonna apply the law to the facts to see what the solution is. And then we're gonna conclude by choosing one of A, B, C, D, E. So this is the question. Your client is a laundry company. It wants to enter into a contract with a new detergent supplier. The client gets in touch with the supplier and sends them a contract offer to buy three loads of detergent for £250 on their standard terms. The detergent company replies with another offer, four loads for £600 on their standard terms. Your client then goes back with a new offer, £260 for five on their standard terms. The detergent company replies by saying they would accept 360 for three on the laundry company standard terms. They then ring the client and say that they actually accept the client's offer of 260 for five on the laundry company standard terms. The client doesn't want to enter into the contract anymore. Is the client bound by the laundry company's acceptance? A, yes, as it was accepted by the detergent company. B, yes, as the detergent company rang to accept 
which overrides previous offers. C, no, the detergent company made a counter offer that terminated the client's offer. D, yes, the detergent company was only requesting further information. E, yes, the detergent company's £360 for three statement was a statement of price, not an offer. So what's going on here in this MCQ? So it is in the text below the podcast if you want to have a look at it in full. But basically what we've got here is a client, which is our laundry company and a detergent company, and they're negotiating a contract. So the client first of all gets in touch and they make an offer of three loads of detergent for £250 on their standard terms. So that's offer number one. The detergent company then replies with another offer. So four loads for 600 on their standard terms, offer number two. Client then goes back with another offer, 260 for five on their standard terms, offer number three. The detergent company replies by saying they would accept 360 for three on the laundry company standard terms. We can say that that's again, another offer. They then ring, so the detergent company then rings the client to accept the client's previous offer that was made before that detergent company's final offer of 260 for five on the laundry company standard terms. But the client, our client, the laundry company, uh, they don't want to enter into the contract anymore. And the question is, when that detergent company rings the client to accept the client's offer of 260 for five, which was made before the detergent company made a further offer of 360 for three. When they did that, was the client bound? In other words, was the offer still outstanding that the detergent company could accept? So let's go through our IRAC method so that we can practice and see how it works in the wild. So firstly, issue. What is the relevant part of the syllabus? So starting point, it's contract law. Narrow it down further, it's a question on offer and acceptance. So that's agreement, a fundamental part of a contract. We need an offer and we need an acceptance. We can go further. The question is showing us that we've got a sequence of offers and acceptances in one way or another. So what that's looking at is the rules on how an offer is terminated and in particular, what's called the battle of the forms. So that's the issue. We're dealing with essentially the termination of an offer and more broadly, how a contract is accepted and in particular, the battle of the forms. So we need to then think about, okay, what are the relevant rules here? So next part, rule. To make a contract, you've got to have an offer. So that's something that's clear and certain, clear and certain offer with intention to be bound that comes from the offer rule. I promise to pay you £20 if you fix my bike. You've also got to have an acceptance. The acceptance has to be clearly communicated to your offer all by the offeree on exactly the same terms. And again, we've got to have that intention to be bound as well. There are some exceptions to the fact uh, or to the rule that acceptance must be communicated, but that's not the focus of this MCQ. So we'll leave that for now. But I'm talking there about things like the postal rule. But generally, your acceptance must be actually communicated to your offer rule. So we have to have an offer. We have to have an acceptance. 
But let's dive deeper into the offer itself. So as I said, the offer must be clear and certain with intention to be bound. If the offer is couched in vaguer language, I may buy, I might buy, that's not going to be enough to constitute a valid offer. In addition, what's called an invitation to treat is also not going to be enough to constitute a valid offer. Or another way of putting it is an invitation to treat is not an offer. An invitation to treat is an invitation from one party to another for that party to make an offer, to make the first step in negotiations. And invitations to treats are found in adverts, auctions, display of goods, and invitations to tender. And another kind of invitation to treat that you see is what's called statements of price. And if you remember, option E contained statement of price as being one of the solutions, potential solutions. And a statement of price is when A asks B what price they would be willing to sell an item for. So the lowest price that you'd be willing to state an item for. And then B states that price. Okay. If A then gives a price that they would buy the material for, A makes that offer. So remember, we've got A asking B, what price would you be willing to sell your bike for? What's the lowest possible price you might you might be willing to sell this for? B then says, I'd let it go for 50 quid. A then says, how about 45? A's making the offer, not B. Okay, B is making a statement of price, an invitation to treat. They're inviting A to take that first step by stating a price. So that's an invitation to treat. Invitation to treats are not offers, so they've got to be distinguished from offers. The next thing to think about is, okay, I understand now what an offer is and what an invitation to treat is and the difference between the two. But the next thing to think about is that other principle that we talked about when we were in that first stage issue, which is termination of an offer. How is an offer terminated? One of the ways is just acceptance, so just accepting the offer. Another way is through lapse, so for example, after a period of time. But another way is by actually making a counteroffer. If you make a counteroffer, that terminates the original offer. Okay, so let's say we've got A makes offer one, B then makes offer two. Offer one is now no longer in existence, and it's offer two that is outstanding. Now that can go on for as long as necessary until a contract is concluded. So B makes offer two, then A makes offer three. Offer two is now defeated and offer three is outstanding. B then makes offer four. Offer three is terminated, offer four is outstanding and so on until the last offer that is made is the one that is accepted. And that is called the battle of the forms and it's seen in written standard terms contracts where one party offers their written standard terms another party then offers their written standard terms or rather the original party's written standard terms with some amendments until the contract is actually or the offer is actually accepted and the contract is formed so the last shot wins the last offer that is outstanding wins okay 
you need to distinguish it from what's called requesting further information. So remember that when A made offer 1, B then made offer 2, offer 1 terminated. If B were to just ask A, on your offer 1, what does this, this and this mean? That is different from B making offer 2. Because what B is doing is just asking for further information about offer 1. And what that means is that offer 1 is therefore still outstanding. So just be aware of that. Another thing to be aware of is that there was actually a recent case where the courts emphasised that the Battle of the Forms rules are not hard and fast rules. So that if, for example, a party were to make offer one, and that was contained in a written contractual document, and party two or party B were to sign that contract, but then made further terms or put forward further terms, offer one is the one accepted because the contract has actually been signed. So just be aware of the fact that Battle of Forms rules are not hard and fast rules and that actually signing a document does indicate your intention to be bound by that term or the terms under which you signed. But in our question, we were dealing with an oral contract, so we can follow the Battle of the Forms rules with more confidence. So just stepping back, that basically concludes our second part, the rule part. Just stepping back, what we've now done, we've obviously identified the issue, which is about the formation of a contract, the making of a valid offer, and how a valid offer is accepted, and obviously termination of offer and battle of the forms. We then use that as a springboard to go into the rules on the battle of the forms. So we talked about what we need for an offer, clear and certain intention to be bound. We talked about how that offer is accepted with clear communication from the offeree. But then we talked about how that offer can be terminated by a counter offer. And what that means is that that counter offer is the one that's outstanding and that that can go on forever until a final offer is accepted. And that is called Battle of the Forms. We pointed out that we need to be careful about the fact that we can distinguish from what's called a request for further information, in which case the last offer outstanding is still outstanding. And also we need to make sure that we're aware of the fact that these are not hard and fast rules. Now that we've done that, we've recalled the law, we've got it in front of us, we're confident we know what we're talking about, we then apply the law to the facts. And to do that, you go through each offer to see whether it is, first of all, a valid offer. You know, do we have an offer uh, that is clear and certain with intention to be bound? Whether that offer is outstanding. So is that offer uh, the one that is there in existence when the acceptance takes place? Whether acceptance does make, take place. So whether the detergent company is actually accepted. And then if rejected, which offer is it that is outstanding and that is accepted or not? Ultimately, there might not be an offer that is accepted. So go through each of them. So the first one is offer one, which was from the client, three loads for £250 on the laundry company's client standard terms. Clear and certain, no issues there, valid offer. But it was then terminated by the detergent company's offer. So that was offer two which was four for £600 on the detergent company standard terms. Clear and certain, no issues with the offer itself, but it was again terminated by the next offer, offer free, which is again from our client, five for £260 on the client standard terms. Again, another valid offer. 
But then that offer is terminated by offer four, the final offer from the detergent company, 360 for three on standard terms again, okay? So is this an invitation to treat a statement of price? I don't think it fits the facts of that here. We're in the context of a series of offers. The language of the detergent company was we would accept on the laundry company standard terms, we would accept 360 for three. But that in itself is saying, this is the offer that we are willing to make to you, okay? They're adding to a series of offer offers. They're indicating what they would accept in that they are saying, this is what we are happy with. This is our offer. If the client had asked, what are you willing to go for? What are you willing to sell your loads for? And then the detergent company would say, mm, we'd be willing to go for this. That would be more akin to a statement of price. But with this, the way that the detergent company said it and the context in which it's in, I think we can say that it's an offer. And what that means is, is that this offer has terminated offer three, that five for 260. And if you remember, after the detergent company made that 360 for three offer on the laundry company's standard terms, they then rang the client and they said, actually, we'll accept your offer three. But that can't work because offer three has been terminated by that offer four. So when we apply the law to the facts, our battle of the forms rules, every single offer is terminated by the next offer. Offer three is therefore terminated by offer four. We also applied the law on invitations to treat to say that this wasn't a um, this wasn't an invitation to treat. If it was, then offer three would still be outstanding and would be able to be accepted. But it wasn't, it was terminated. And therefore, the detergent company is not then able to ring the client to try and accept offer three, five for 260. It can't work because it's been terminated because of the battle of the forms rules. And the offer that's outstanding is 360 for three. There's no acceptance by the client because the client, the laundry company, does not ever ring the detergent company to accept that or tell them that they accept that. So we don't have the formation of a contract there. And we certainly don't have, after we've applied the law to the facts and we've established these battle of the forms rules, we certainly don't have acceptance of the client's offer before the termination of its of that offer by the 360 for three offer. So no contract is formed. So the client is not bound. They do not have to be bound by that contract, by the detergent company's attempt to accept. So the final thing we need to do is conclude. That means going through your A, B, C, D, E to select which one is the correct or best answer. And I think with this one, there is actually only one correct answer. We don't have to deal with that best thing, fortunately. Because if we go through A, B, C, D, E, all of them but C say yes. So in other words, there is a contract. The client is bound by the detergent company's acceptance. But C is the only one that says no. The detergent company made a counter offer that terminated the client's offer. We know now that that is correct. We applied the law to the facts and we established that that offer from the client was terminated 
Okay, so the 260 for five that was terminated by the detergent company saying we would accept 360 for three. This is what we this is our offer. This is what we are happy with. Okay, that terminated that offer. So the detergent company's attempt to accept that offer, the 260 for five, won't work. So the correct answer is C. So that is how you should deal with every MCQ. Now, in the exam itself, you will be a lot quicker. It will come a lot easier to you. You'll be able to just go bang, bang, bang. I know my IRAC stuff. These are the relevant rules. I've applied the law to the facts and I've concluded. And it will be much, much easier for you. But get that technique right and you will increase your chances of passing. In order to get that technique right, you've got to understand the law. That's absolutely fundamental. You've got to be able to understand the relevant legal principles and the black letter law rules. There's no secret to that. But you've also got to be able to work at and develop that technique. And what it essentially means is that in your exam, the chances are you will get a question on something that you've never seen before in a pattern that you don't recognise. It seems completely random and it terrifies you. But if you get the technique right, you will increase your chances of getting that question right because you will have the confidence to approach that question and get that best answer.